Romans 13, and let's, uh, let's pray as we come to God's word. Lord, we just thank you uh, this morning that, uh, that you've given us your word, Lord, and we want to feed on it. You said, Jesus, that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, Lord. And so we just recognize that uh, this is our food this morning. It's, it's meal time. And Lord, we pray that your spirit would just serve up for us something that would sustain us, Lord, that would breathe life into us, God, that would change us and transform us and give us your mind. And so, Lord, I pray that as we spend time in the word that we would not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but that our minds would be transformed and that we would know your will, Lord, and your desire for us. And so, Father, speak to us, we pray, through, the, through your word, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Right on, so Romans chapter 13, we've, uh, as we've been cruising through Romans, we've moved into this really practical section of this, this book, and the last couple weeks we've been in Romans chapter 12, and in Romans chapter 12, we saw how, how grace and how faith in the Lord is to direct our relationships. That's one of the things Paul was talking about, and you, you recall, because it just kind of sets the groundwork for where he's going to go next, but you recall he he shared with us about uh, the vertical relationship that we have with the Lord and how practically we are to respond to the Lord. And he spoke to us about two different areas. He said this, we're to offer our bodies to the Lord. We're to offer our bodies to him as living sacrifice. That God is concerned about our physical bodies and that our physical bodies are to be used in worship. And we offer them to the Lord as a living sacrifice, as that spiritual act of worship. And then Paul also told us that the Lord's also interested in our minds and that he wants to transform our minds that rather than conforming uh, like a chameleon to the pattern of this world, we're to be transformed by the renewal of the mind. It's like that, that transformation, that metamorphosis of a, of, a, of a caterpillar into a butterfly so that we can know and understand the will of God for our lives. And so the vertical relationship that we have with our Father in heaven involves both our body and our mind, Paul said. But then he, then he took us and he began to chat with us where we were last week. And I know lots of you weren't here. We had a fun time last week, actually. Uh, last week, the power was out in half the building. You know, the snow had come down. We had no sound system, so it was unplugged. We had no heat, so we, you know, the scarves were on and the whole deal, and it was kind of cool in here, and then finally uh, the heat came on. But uh, yeah, it was nice. It was kind of a fun Sunday, considering it felt like camp or something like that. We were all just tucked in up front. So, so last week when we were in the second half of, of Romans chapter 12, um, Paul talked about not the vertical relationship with God, but our horizontal relationship with people. And he took that conversation in two directions, towards those who are on the inside of the kingdom and those who are on the outside of the kingdom, those who know Jesus and those who don't know Jesus. And so he said to those who are inside the kingdom, to those who know Jesus, he said this, let, let your love be genuine. And, and the picture that, that best described our relationship that Paul shared to others in the kingdom of God was that of brothers and sisters. He said, you, you, you need to treat your relationship as one another in the church here as like a healthy sibling 
relationship that's, that's enjoyable, that's delightful, that takes the church and turn, turns the church into family. I, I, I love that about our church. To, to me, I said this last week, this feels like my family. And so that, that's what, it, what it's supposed to be because we have a family tie. This is a blood relationship. I don't know if we, sometimes we forget that under the blood of Jesus. We're, we're relatives. And so Paul said that was the relationship to those who are on the inside. And then to those who are on the outside, he said this, we're to practice kindness in, in hope that we can warm them up towards Jesus. That they'll warm up to the gospel. And he said this, vengeance belongs to the Lord. So don't act in vengeance towards people. He said, so far as it's possible with you, live peaceably with people. And, and overcome evil, don't be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And so chapter 12 gave us these practical instructions with regards to this vertical relationship that we have with our Father in heaven and then with our horizontal relationships with, with those of the world and those of the kingdom. And now Paul takes this conversation. To me, this is kind of interesting just studying this week based on the fact that, that we had Earl Phillips here from Trinity Western University yesterday. Paul takes this subject and he turns it towards the authorities that are in this world, those whom we find ourselves under their leadership, under their rule, under their government, under their administration. And Paul is going to show us how we are to relate to earthly authorities, how we are to function as believers in society and engage our culture a little bit. And so this is an interesting chapter, Romans chapter 13. I remember, um, a few years back, maybe some of you will remember this, the wall got graffitied out there. And on the outside, someone spray painted, capitalism has failed us. And, uh, you know, it's just whatever, just some graffiti. And once in a while that happens. But I was remembering that as I was thinking about this, this text that has to do with authority, with government and there are those who love capitalism. There are those who love socialism. There are those who are adherents to communism. But as followers of Jesus, here's the truth, and we sometimes forget this because we get caught up into this stuff, is that we do not put our hope in human government. We don't put our hope in human government. Whatever the ism is, because we are citizens of another country and of another city, and our hope is heaven. Our hope is the kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God. A kingdom that John the Baptist announced. He said, the kingdom is at hand. Jesus announced the same thing. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is present wherever the king is. Say, what's the kingdom of God? I mean, we recognize that it's something that is spiritual until Jesus comes. And the kingdom is present wherever the king is. And if Christ lives in you, then you are a citizen of his kingdom. And wherever you are, the kingdom of heaven is present. You know, when I, when I consider human government, I, I guess I would just say this, I just... Freshly reminded of this this week. I'm so, I'm so happy and grateful that our hope is in Jesus and in the hope of his kingdom. 
And so Paul writes this as he's writing in Romans chapter 13 and writing this letter to followers of Jesus. We've got to remember he's writing to people who were living in the heart of the Roman Empire, man. We've talked about this many times, that this church was going through difficulties because, I've had to keep doing weird things here. This church was going through difficulties because the, the Roman emperor Claudius had kicked the Jews out of Rome. And then they had been invited back into Rome. And there was this mix happening in the church and there was confusion over some doctrinal issues. And the city of Rome, there was, you know, it hadn't quite got to this point where there were great persecutions and difficulties for followers of Jesus. That hadn't yet quite started. But persecution was just around the corner for the church. And so it's interesting that Paul, Paul writes this letter to a church that is existing in the heart of the Roman Empire, right in the city of Rome. And it's a great chapter because we need functional and practical instructions in regards to how we're to relate to human authority and, and rule and government. Do we rebel as believers? Do we rebel against human authority and administration? Do we submit to it? What are we to do? So this is a practical text. And so let's check it out. Verse one, he says this. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities for there is no authority except from God and those that exist have been instituted by God. So firstly, Paul says this. He says, we, we have to realize that God has established all authorities. That means for us as Canadians, Ottawa means Victoria. It means this building just over here, the town of Gibsons, established by God. Those that exist have been instituted by God. That means that, that he has put them into order. He has appointed them. They are ordained. Some translations say they're ordained by God. For there is no authority except from God, Paul says. And so, you know, you think about that, I think, well, you may not like the government that God has established. And we'll leave that for another discussion, maybe. <laughs> you know, you think about, again, about Paul. I mean, Paul is living in a day, he lived during the time of when Nero, of Nero coming to power in Rome. You know, he, he spoke to a church that was, like I said, in the heart of the Roman Empire. You know, when, when Nero became the, the emperor, he would feed Christians, followers of Jesus, to the lions in the Colosseum. You know, he would take Christians, and we know what history tells us, he would dip them in wax, and he would light them as human torches in his gardens. This is the very man, you know, Nero's the very man who actually ordered Paul's execution. You know, Paul wrote these things that we're about to, to read. And so the reality is, is this, is that there are times when you can find yourself in a spot where you do not like the government that you find yourself under, but that by no means lessens the reality of the fact that there is no authority except from God. God has established it. And now when it's, when it's good government, when you like the government, it's easy to give credit to God and, and to thank him for rulers and to thank him for those who are in authority over us. But, but what about when the government's bad, you know? What about when the government is evil? And so Paul tells us, 
God has established the government. But I would say this. That doesn't mean that God is responsible for the sins of government. Or that God is responsible for the wrongdoings of government. It's the authority to rule that comes from him. He gives the authority. And what man does with that authority, what government does with the authority that is God given, is their choice. But I would say this. You know, often the government is a reflection of the people whom they serve, aren't they? It's in government. And so God uses government and he uses them to accomplish his purposes on the earth. You remember what the Lord said about Pharaoh? He said during the days of Moses, he said, Pharaoh, for this reason I raised you up. You know, the Lord spoke of Cyrus, the the king of the Medo-Persians, and Isaiah spoke of him as the Lord gave utterance to him. And the Lord says this, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and he will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt and of the temple, let the foundations be laid. Isaiah prophesied that about a Medo-Persian king before he was born. You know, Daniel had dreams about Alexander the Great and how the Lord would use him and he would conquer nations of the earth. You know, the Roman Empire, when you think about it, uh, the scripture tells us that at the fullness of time, Jesus came, you know. When you go, when you go do Bible college, they, they love to tell you about how just the, the fullness of time and how the Roman Empire was the perfect environment in the history of the world for the spread of the gospel and the coming of the Messiah. God used human government and its structure and the way the earth was operating to accomplish his purposes in the sending of his son. And so God uses government to accomplish his purposes on the earth. And, you know, you think about Paul. There was more than one time we read about Paul in in the book of Acts that, that he used his citizenship and he used his relationship to government to his advantage as a believer You know, there were times when he was protected because he was a citizen of Rome. Uh, And so how about for us today? You know, you think about it, there's some pretty good advantages to being a Canadian, isn't there? I mean, around the world, you know, we're going to Israel. I ordered myself, and now I'm kind of embarrassed to tell you this by the way we played this week, but I ordered myself a new Hockey Canada hat to wear while I was, you know, walking around in Jerusalem. I'm sure I'm going to get mocked for that. You guys lost to Germany, man. You didn't even... Sheesh, eh? Terrible. Ah, yeah, I might get mugged, yeah. So, you know, there, there are advantages to Canadian citizenship. You know, there's lots of countries this morning on a Sunday morning where believers are gathering in fear and in secrecy because they don't have the freedom to do so. And here we are, you know, as we talked about yesterday, freedom of assembly to gather and, and to worship the Lord with freedom. You know, I think about government, I'm thankful for believers who serve in government. You know, for lots of years, my brother-in-law and sister-in-law, Lisa's sister and her husband, have faithfully served God in the Justice Department in Ottawa and have been used powerfully in our country. And there's many believers tucked tucked away in the government serving Jesus. But we... What Paul is telling us here is we consider government and what we have to always remember is this, is as believers... We do not put our hope in a human government. Our hope is in Jesus. 
And so because of that, we pray for those who are in authority over us. But I would say this. Don't lose sleep over the politics. You know, don't lose sleep over Canadian politics. Those authorities have been established by God and their time will come to an end and Jesus is going to rule. Jesus is going to rule. And so as Christians, our focus should always be the promotion of the gospel, man. Promoting Jesus, preaching Jesus. Jesus said, when I am lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. And so Jesus is our focus. Our focus is for working, working for the kingdom of heaven as we live as righteous citizens, as we're going to see here. And so Paul wants us to know, God has established all authorities. Look at verse 2. He says this, Therefore, whoever resists the authorities, resists what God has appointed. And those who resist will incur judgment. Wow, that's pretty simple, isn't it? It's like, just read that. It's, it's pretty simple. When we resist authority, we're resisting that which God has established. And those who resist invite judgment upon themselves. You know, like I said, sometimes in government, sometimes with government, you're under the authority of those who you don't respect. Maybe godless leaders. And, and the truth is, we, that's just the reality. You don't always respect everyone in government, but, but what we're being told here is that we have to respect the authority. We have to respect the office. We have to recognize that God has ordained these things. So when I read that, I think, well, what about if, if I come in conflict with the government and my Christian faith? Then what do I do? Well, it's interesting, you know, to think about that. Say the authority. Say the government that, was, that God has ordained asks us to do something sinful as followers of, of Jesus Christ. What do we do? Well, there are times in, scriptures, in the scriptures that we see People disobeyed the authority of the government. Let me give you an example that's a great one from the book of Exodus. Remember the midwives? Remember the midwives in Exodus chapter 1? An incredible story. Pharaoh instructed those women, when the Hebrews give birth, and if they give birth to a male, you are to terminate that pregnancy at delivery. Live abortion. You are to perform that on those little baby boys. And the scripture tells us that those midwives knew that such an act would be sin against God. And so they refused to follow through with the instruction. They quietly uh, rebelled. And the scripture says that God honored them. And it specifically tells us that God gave those women families of their own because they honored him in such a manner. You know, Acts chapter 5, we read about when the Pharisees arrested Peter and John and they, they commanded them. They said, you are no longer to preach the name of Jesus. You're to stop preaching the gospel. And what did Peter and John do? They spoke up and they said, you judge for yourselves whether it's right if we should obey you or obey God. I think we'll keep going preaching the gospel. It's good. And so there's times to disobey authority. But here's what I would say. We should not treat rebellion against government lightly. We should not treat rebellion against authority as light because God has instituted those things. And so, you know, 
If it's rebellion, then we need to consider those things. Look at verse three with me. It says this, for rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who is authority? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. You know, I always love it on a long weekend. You know, maybe you're coming, this happened to us several times. We were out at my mom's in West Seashelt for dinner. And then we're coming through the creek and you come down past the golf course into that little dip by the B&K and you come around the corner, red and blues are gone either side of the highway, you know, and they're, they're doing, their, uh, they're doing their, their roadside check for drinking and driving and all that kind of stuff. And there's such a freedom when you pull up to those roadside checks when you're like totally innocent, you know. And, and you roll up to that roadside check and I always make sure, I'm like, and I really appreciate that you guys are doing this tonight. So thank you, good job, and then cruise away. But you know, on the other hand, I've been in that situation where I see those in the rear view mirror, those same lights. <laughs> And, uh, you know, hot pursuit. And then I don't value their work so much. That's, that's a thing. <laughs> you know, these thoughts go through your head. It's like, why don't you go catch a real criminal? You know, or like, where did you come from? I should have been watching. <laughs> and then fear. Paul talks about fear. Fear starts to come. Crap, how much is this going to cost me? What am I going to tell my wife? <laughs> More importantly, and, you know, there's like repercussions for disobeying authority. And so I, w- I would just say this. I mean, this is the reality for all of us that we far prefer the commendation that comes from doing what's right than the terror of judgment from coming from, from doing what's wrong. And so Paul says this. He says, obey the authorities for their commendation instead of for their condemnation. Obey authorities. Look at what he says in verse 4. For he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid. For he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Now, I just read this and it's like, you know, when was the last time that you thought of you know, government or police or some authority, a teacher or a principal, whatever the authority is, as God's servant. That's what he says. He says the authorities are servants of God. You know, when we think of a, you know, I think in the church context, sometimes we go, oh, well, the, the pastor is the servant of God. You know, the missionary is the servant of God. You know, I, I'm a servant of God. And, and we forget that you know, the police officer, the, the politician, the, the principal, the teacher are servants of God. And what Paul is telling us is this. Whatever the authority is, maybe it's your parents. Maybe it's your husband. Maybe it's the teacher or the principal or the police or the government. According to Paul, they exist for your good. And, and if disobedience is your gig then God will use those authorities as an agent of wrath in your life. So what's, what's the purpose of authority we see here? Well, it's to, it's to restrain wickedness and to commend goodness. Those are the two functions of every authority that God has established. To restrain wickedness and to commend goodness. And God will hold those authorities 
to account whether they have commended goodness and condemned wickedness. They're his servant, his provision, and he says it's for your protection and for your good. You know, it's interesting. He says here, one of the roles of this servant of God is that he does not bear the sword in vain. That's, that's interesting. You know, and, and this is really where we see that, that a government can use force against evil. This is the scriptural kind of mandate for that. You know, the sword is a weapon. You know, you use the sword to like, to chastise or just to reprimand. Use the sword to kill. And this is the biblical sanction for a government's use of force. And governments will answer to God for the way that they've used that force. Authorities will answer to God for whether they've done that in condemning wickedness and commending goodness. And so it's interesting to think about it when you, when you think of the role of the church or you compare the role of government to the role of the church. The sword that the church is given is the sword of the spirit, the word of God. We're given a sword too. We have a weapon too. We, we, we take this weapon, the Bible and the scripture says, this is the weapon of our warfare and we use it to divide flesh and spirit. It's one of the functions of the church. And so one of the functions of the church is, is, is this, is that, that we are to remind government you're accountable to God. You're a servant of God. Don't forget that as you're in your place of authority. You are a servant of God. And so we, we, we see that the establishment of the authority is of God. But we also see this. The punishment. The government's authority to punish a wrongdoer is also ordained. It's a God-ordained role of authority. It says this again, look. He is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. And so practically, for us, followers of Jesus, that means this. We should submit to authority. We should submit to authority because we want to avoid wrath. <laughs> We should submit to authority because we don't want to be afraid or incur judgment. And verse 5 gives us another reason to submit to God's ordained authorities. He says, for the, for the sake of conscience, for the sake of a clear conscience. Look at verse 5. Therefore, one must be in subjection not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. See, here's the reality. You can submit to, we know this. You can submit to authority out of fear of punishment, but it's better to submit to authority for the sake of a clear conscience. The conscience is that inner part that God has given us that distinguishes between what is good and what is bad, what is right, what is wrong. The conscience governs our thoughts. The conscience governs our actions. It urges us to do what's right. That's why we speak of having a guilty conscience or a clear conscience. Guilty when we've done something wrong clear when we've been in the right. Again, you know, take the speed limit as an example. We all love the speed limit, right? Don't we? I don't. I have a record to prove that. <laughs> and, you know, here's what I've learned. I could submit to the speed limit 
out of fear of getting caught and that I'll have to pay a hefty fine and then report it to my wife. Or I could submit to the speed limit as a matter of clear conscience to obey the law. Now, obviously, the, the better choice, the more godly choice is to do so for a sake of a clear conscience. So I had to remind myself of that this week. <laughs> so rather than for fear of punishment, for the sake of conscience, do what's right before God in the eyes of God. You know, I, I, I've heard it said, and I love this saying, that a clear conscience makes for a soft pillow. You rest well when you have a clear conscience. And so Paul keeps going, and he's, he's going to get a little personal here for us. He decides to talk about money and taxes. Look at verse 6. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For the authorities are ministers of God attending to this very thing. Now, I mean, I can't resist commenting. Don't, don't you love some of the ways tax dollars are spent with fiscal responsibility? I mean, I just can't wait to see what the bill is for the trip to India. Uh, you know, I, I don't know what that's going to cost. And I think the nation's probably going to go berserk when we find out our prime minister's clothing budget, okay? But at least he's going to have something to wear for the next w Indian wedding he goes to, right? As long as he doesn't outdo the groom. And, you know, or I think about the, the many years as a Sunshine Coaster where you would you'd head over to Vancouver, do the drive along Marine Drive, and you'd see these three fast cat fairies. Remember those? Those fairies sitting there. It's like, seriously? You know, like, whatever, that, I can't remember what it was. It was in the billions, whatever it was. The bill for that. Tax dollars spent wisely. There was the Canada 150 rubber duck. I can't remember what that thing was worth. You know, let's be honest. It's insane how tax dollars are spent. Well, can we agree on that? We can totally agree on that. It makes you mad. But Paul says, for the sake of your conscience, for the sake of a clear conscience, that as believers, we dare not violate our obligation to our government, to Canada, an obligation to God as citizens of heaven that we pay taxes to our nations, to our nation. There has to be tax. I mean, that's the reality. I mean, it costs money to do business. It costs money to have a government. The simple truth is this, is that Christians submit to government and to authority by paying that which is due, tax. Look at what he says in verse seven. Pay to all what is owed to them, Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owed. Respect to whom respect is owed. Honor to whom honor is owed. Jesus even said, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. Jesus paid his taxes. The gospels tell us that. And remember he told Peter, you know, get, go catch a fish from the Sea of Galilee when you bring it in, open its mouth, and in its mouth you'll find a coin. And then take that coin and go pay the temple tax. You pay my tax and pay your tax. And I like that story because I go, Lord, sometimes we need miraculous help to pay our taxes. <laughs> but we want to honor the Lord in doing so. To have a clear conscience. And so Paul says, be obedient to the authority for, for love's sake. Check out verse 8. 
owe no one anything except to love each other for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Now I would say this, I read this and I don't think when he says this, owe no one anything, I don't think that he is saying you're not allowed to have debt. You know, of course, it is the best practice in life to not have debt. Okay, that is wisdom. But we know, also know this, you're never going to get into the housing market in this community unless you go to the bank and get a mortgage. And taking out a mortgage, I would say, on a house to me is, is not debt. To get in debt is to do this, to not pay your payments on your mortgage. You entered into agreement, now you honor your agreement. That's business. But to dishonor that agreement and to not pay what you have borrowed, that's debt. And so Paul says, owe no one anything. And the reality is, is you can have a proper business arrangement alone. But if you get behind and you owe the creditor, that's debt. And so Paul says, owe no one anything. Okay? Christians are not to, to live in debt. And Paul has specifically been talking about what? Taxes. Taxes and owing the government. It's tax season. Don't you love tax season? No, apparently not. As <laughs> followers of Jesus, here's what I'm going to tell you. Nitty gritty of the gospel right here. We need to properly fill out our tax returns. We need to honor the Lord. And maybe what other people don't see. Of course, we understand that there's a, there's a difference between legitimate tax planning and evading tax. And you would be crazy, I would say, to not do all the tax planning that you can do. You should do that. That's wisdom. But then as a Christian, you should pay to the government what is owed to the government. That's what the Word of God tells us. Owe no one anything except the continuing debt of love to one another. That's interesting. Because Paul says there is a debt. There is a debt that your life has. And that's this. You're to love one another. You're to love everyone. That's your debt before me because I displayed my love for you in the sending of my son. Love one another. That's the fundamental principle of Christianity. Love one another is the new command that Jesus gave to us. And when we practice love for one another, Paul's going to tell us there's no need for really other commands. You know, you love God, you love other people, you don't need a lot more than that. Look what he says for the commandments, verse 9. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Verse 10, love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love is the fulfilling of the law. Love is the fulfilling of the law. You know, you read, you read that list and it's like, you shall not, you shall not, do not, do not, do not. And we know Jesus turned all of those do nots into just a positive when he said, love God and love your neighbor. Do that and you don't have to worry about all the negatives. And so what's he telling us? It's interesting here. You think about it. He's saying, don't let there be moral debts between you and other people. You love people. 
And don't let there be monetary debts. Love each other. So the Christian fulfills the law of the land and the law of the Lord at the same time by keeping out of debt. No moral debts, no monetary debts. And so Paul, he's going to go on here and he begins to share some, some practical instructions with us. And he's going to say this. You, you need to understand the time in which you live. Check it out. Look with me at the text here again. Verse 11. He says, besides this, besides all this stuff I'm talking about, besides this, you know the time that the hour has come for you to wake from your sleep for salvation is nearer to us now than when we first believed. So what does Paul say? He says this, understand the present time. Here's a question. What time is it on God's clock? On God's clock, on his salvation plan for the history of his story in his narrative, what time is it on the clock? And we, got the, we, got the, we actually have a doomsday clock. They moved it forward recently. What time is it on God's clock? And that means this. He's saying this. He says, you, you, the original language expresses this idea. You need to perceive what is going around, on around you. Look with your eyes. Open your eyes and have perception. Look around you and discern and discover the season in which you live. Remember Jesus said that? He actually said, in regards to his return, no man would know the hour nor the day, but he said you will recognize the season. And so we're to notice and we're to discover the season in which we live, the present time in which we live. Let me ask you this question. What is God doing in the nations? What's God doing in the nations? Look at our nation. Look at America. Look at the Middle East. Look at what's going on in Europe. What is God doing in the nations? Where are we on God's timeline in history? Where are we in God's purposes for history? These are interesting days. These are interesting days. Remember Joseph? Sold in slavery by his brothers. All this tragedy happens in his life and he's taken to Egypt and is raised to power in Egypt and becomes second only to Pharaoh and God uses him to save the world from a famine that is coming upon all the nations. And when the time comes and Genesis tells us the story when his brothers finally come down to Egypt and he saves their lives and saves his family and they are so remorseful before him he says this, he says, you meant this for evil, but God meant it for good. He says, God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. See, Joseph understood the time in which he lived. He understood the purposes to which God had called him. He could see past the tragedy of his life and say, God is working something out and God wants me to participate with him in that. There are other examples of 
men and women in the scriptures who understood the times in which they lived. The scripture speaks of the men of Issachar in 1 Chronicles chapter 12, that they were men who understood the time and knew what Israel should do. Xerxes, during the time of Queen Esther, his queen, you remember the story, his queen Vashti rebelled against him and didn't follow his authority. And the book of Esther tells us that Xerxes spoke with the wise men of his nation, men who the scripture says understood the times. I think about the wise men who were probably Babylonians, Persians, who dropped everything at the sign of a star. They recognized the season in which they lived and they traveled to Jerusalem in search of the king of kings to worship. Dropped everything to worship Jesus. And so Paul says, do we, do we understand the times in which we live? You know, you want to get into Bible prophecy? Newspaper in one hand, Bible in the other. <laughs> it's exciting days. Do we realize the time in which we live? And so Paul says this, wake up, man. Wake up, church. Wake up, God's people. Today is one day closer to realizing salvation. You're, you're nearer now than when you first believed. Ivan and I were joking this morning. Nearer now than when you first believed, eh, Ivan? His heart almost took him out this week. He said, boy, this weekend could have been a lot different. But it's, it's a reality for all of us. Wake up. You know, when I was in Bible college, uh, my roommate was uh, an RA. So that meant that in his desk drawer, some of you guys know my roommate, Peter. Uh, Peter's been here lots of times. And, and in his desk drawer, there were keys to all the buildings on campus because he was an RA. And I was his unruly roommate, so I had access to those keys. And so one night, uh, myself and a couple other guys took those keys and we broke into the chapel. And uh, in the chapel, there was this banner that hung above this stage, and it always had the theme verse on there for the year. And that would kind of direct our chapels. And so we, we got ladders from around the campus, and we took down the banner. And then we flipped the banner over, and we took jiffy markers, and we decided we'd do our own theme verse for the year. And we chose Proverbs 6, verse 9, which says this, How long will you lie there, sluggard? When will you get up for your sleep? And then we hung that back up in the chapel and quietly went back to bed and waited for chapel the next morning. And we sent a wave of guilt through a Bible college. Bible college students, they're just guilty all the time. You know, they're just <laughs> condemned. Just condemned people. They need the gospel. And, and so they didn't see the joke of it. They felt the condemnation of the verse we picked. And it was like kids were repenting at the front. And it's like bad. Anyways... Paul says this, wake up! How long will you lie there, you sluggards? And I think the Holy Spirit would say that to you and I this morning in regards to the Lord. Wake up! Don't be a sluggard with Jesus. Look at verse 12. The night is far gone, the day is at hand. So then let us cast off the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. What does he say? He says, wake up and armor up. Put on the armor. Get dressed. You know, there's two parts. When you get dressed, 
You got to take things off and you got to put things on. And he says this, you need in your life, you should be casting off the works of darkness. Throw them away like filthy clothes. And armor up. Put on the armor, the armor of light. Look at verse 13. He says, let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and, and jealousy. Wake up. Armor up. I would say this, clean it up. You're called to wear the armor of light. Not the deeds of darkness. We have no reason to get our lives absorbed in the sinful pleasures of this world. Behave like daytime is here all the time. Behave in, in such a way so that everything can be seen as though in the daylight. And then Paul tells us, we'll wrap up here, verse 14. Grow up. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. You know, to clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus means be more like him, man. Put on his nature. Put on his character. Don't think about how you can fulfill the sinful desires of your flesh. You know, you think about spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is won and lost in the mind. The mind's a battleground. You know that all the time. The mind is a battleground. The scripture says, Take every thought captive and make it obedient to Jesus. Paul tells us here, clothe yourself in the Lord Jesus Christ. Wake up. <laughs> Armor up. Clean up. Grow up. That's a call to us. That's a call to us. When we, when we talk about all this practical stuff, that is right here in Romans 13 and, and responding to authority and paying tax and giving honor to where honor is due and not having moral debts and not having monetary debts and loving our neighbor and loving God. Look, this is the mature stuff of Christian faith. This is grown-up behavior. This is the behavior that we're called to as citizens of heaven. You just think about the whole progression of Romans that Paul has taken us on. From Romans chapter 1, right through teaching us about faith and, and faith in Jesus and grace alone and saved not by works. And this is what maturity looks like here as he begins to explain these things to us. It has to do with all of these relationships in our lives. And so church, the challenge is this for us. Wake up, armor up, clean it up. Grow up. Grow up. Grow up into all things Jesus. Grow up into all things Jesus. Amen?